This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to a Rand podcast about the possibility of an energy independent United States. Our speaker is Dr. Keith Crane, a senior economist and director of RAND's Environment, Energy, and Economic Development Program, and a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. Dr. Crane's research interests focus on developing and evaluating policy options for addressing climate change and on trends in U.S. energy production. His recent projects include estimating the cost of renewable fuels, assessing the implications of imposing a tax on oil to finance transportation infrastructure, and assessing the potential for U.S. exports of fossil fuels. His presentation will address shifts in U.S. energy markets, their economic implications and effects on gasoline and electricity prices, and how these developments might affect climate change. And now, let's welcome Dr. Keith Crane. Well, thank you all for coming tonight. And um, I would like to put a question mark at the end of the title today because I'm going to, in some ways, kind of debunk the importance of energy independence. But so first, let me start off with a few facts. Um, the one, uh, first, when you think about oil, I mean, you think about energy, I think it's very important to kind of think about how you use energy. There's electricity, which we use for our lighting and for, you know, our, for, uh, for much of what we do in terms of industry and elsewhere. And there's transportation fuels. Many of you probably drove here today or took a bus. And... Um, Two are, at least currently, are very, very separate. So today when I'm going to talk about energy independence, we're going to talk a little bit about electricity, but we're also going to talk about oil. So what is the situation in the United States today? Uh, The big issue we usually talk about when we think about energy independence tends to be oil. Um, The United States is still dependent on imported oil. There's been a big shift, and I'll talk about that um, a little bit later in terms of how much we tend to about imported oil. But for all intents and purposes, when people think about the future, the next decade or next 20 years, the United States will still be importing oil. In fact, when you, if you listen, when you listen to the papers, I often talk about North American energy or oil independence, which means reflects the fact we import a lot of oil from Canada and from Mexico. Um, the other two fuels I talk about today, because the focus is primarily on fossil fuels, is natural gas, where there's been a big boom, and coal. Um, these fuels are used to generate electricity and for industrial uses and elsewhere, but they really have little, if anything, at current moment to do with oil. So when you think about energy independence, I think it's important to kind of remember to split those two types of energy uses in the country. In natural gas, we still uh, import some from Canada, a little bit from Mexico, but that is going down dramatically. And in terms of coal, we've been self-sufficient for, uh, you know, for, for forever, and we've always been a coal exporter. Let me, so let me start a little bit about, so what difference does energy independence make? Um, first and foremost, I think it, we can talk about some of the positive aspects We've seen the, a really healthy energy industry in the United States, especially the past five years. A lot of uh, there's been a lot of employment growth. If you go to Western Pennsylvania, an area which historically has been kind of depressed, um, there's really been a boom there in terms of both royalties paid to people in Western Pennsylvania and people being hired to drill uh, gas w- drills uh, wells, etc. Um, we've also seen a benefit more broadly especially in the eastern part of the United States in terms of decline in natural gas prices, but it's been important for California as well. Um, even so, when we think about going back to oil, even though we're, we're um, drilling and uh, producing more oil, it's not going to make any difference to you in terms of the effect it has at the price at the pump. If you think about Canada as a major oil exporter, 
Canada, if you go to Windsor, Ontario, right across the border from Detroit, they're paying the same prices for gasoline and diesel that do in Detroit. So I think the, the point here is that um, despite um, jobs in North Dakota and increased production in the states, um, because oil is a global commodity and the price is set by you know, increased numbers of cars in China or um, increased demand in India or elsewhere, that no matter how much oil we're producing in the states, even if by some uh, big surge in production we would end up in terms of being actually an oil exporter again, because at one time we were the world's largest oil exporter, it's not going to really affect um, that very, very important price that you face in terms of going to the stations. So let's kind of dig in here. So with that kind of sobering or downer comment, let's talk a little bit about what is happening to the energy industry in the United States. Um, what we have seen is that we're seeing two phenomena in terms of oil over the past five years. First, in great part because we have much tougher uh, a mandate in terms of having energy efficiency for cars and light trucks, now heavy trucks, we've actually seen a decline in consumption. In fact, ExxonMobil, I have this right, uh, said that peak sales of gasoline were in 2007, and they never really expect sales of gasoline in the United States to go up back up to that level. So on the one hand, we're seeing a decline in consumption, which is, um, according to the Energy Information Agency, which is part of the Department of Energy, is um, looking at kind of stagnation. And at the other hand, what we've seen is we're seeing an increase in output, um, which is bringing us back up to levels of oil production we haven't seen since um, the 70s and 80s. And this oil is coming about um, not because we've uh, discovered all sorts of new fields like we did in Alaska, if you remember, in the 70s, but what has really happened here is that existing deposits of oil, which were in what they call tight formations, these are sandstone or shale down about a mile below the surface, um, and primarily in North Dakota and Texas, these are deposits of oil that historically we haven't been able to extract. And what has happened is there's been a technological change, not a revolution that happened overnight, but a, a, a evolution of two types of technologies. One was um, horizontal drilling. So we have ended up being able to, over the last 30, 40 years, um, drilling companies have gotten better and better about just using a, a bit, have you ever seen it, it's just a little bit angled, and they're able now to drill almost a mile or longer. Uh, I think the longest horizontal drill is a couple, three miles underground in order to go into these oil-rich or natural gas-rich areas. The other thing that has happened is they've developed something called fracking, um, or fracturing once they go down there. And this is almost like what they do is when you drill a well like this, you're taking a pipe. So they're sticking a pipe mile down, mile out. And then what they do is they stick something almost like a firecracker inside or a set of bullets, and so then they pierce this pipe and put holes into it. After that, then they force down into this pipe a combination of sand and water, and they put a little diesel fuel in there to make it grease it along, and they put it under such pressure that they're able to break the sandstone or the shale out for close to a mile. And once they've broken up that sandstone or that shale, and those little sand particles they put down there keep those cracks open, the oil or natural gas starts flowing out. So what has happened here, it isn't like we didn't know that these deposits existed, but um, what we have been able to do through a combination of, of really experience and these new types of, this technology has been around for a long time, got better and better at, we have suddenly seen a surge of increase of 25-30% in terms of oil production in the states. Um, this type of technology is not only confined to oil, but the big news tends to be natural gas. And you probably heard about the movies like Gasland and uh, other movies that have been out there really focused on natural gas. 
same type of technology is being used in different parts of the country, um, primarily right now in Pennsylvania, but also in Texas. And one of the big concerns that they've had about the fracking has been um, kind of the major one has to do with water. And so there's some things that have that, um, going back to this slide, the companies have been pretty good about making sure that there isn't any leaks at the top. And if you go out to a frac site, they actually have four series of pipes where there's cement in between all of them. So they have a big pipe that goes down before the water table. Pennsylvania, because there's so much coal, then they have another pipe that goes down before coal seams, and then a pipe that goes down to the bottom, and finally the frac pipe. So the problem has been less about leaks um, although there is concerns about breaking cracks in the cement. But the bigger problem is, is that when that water goes down, some of it comes back up. And so, um, one of the, so the, the tension here has been, what do you do with that water? And these are pictures from Pennsylvania. And um, right now, about 80% of that water can be reused for fracking in terms of other wells. Um, in the case of Pennsylvania, the Department of Environment has been pretty tough in terms of what to do about this, but earlier on there were problems of putting, putting that water through municipal sewage plants, which really couldn't do anything about it. Very salty, it's much saltier than ocean water. It contains a lot of other stuff from the bottom. So this has been the big challenge of fracking. Another problem people have been concerned about has been some air pollution in terms of, because if you go to these sites, they're usually out in the countryside, you have a lot of generators that have to build up that pressure to stick the water and the um, sand and blast that through two miles down below. And then there's been some damage to roads, which the drilling companies are liable for. Um, when it's all said and done, however, I think one of the things one has to compare with this, this was, used to be coal company, country. And, if you, and one of the things that happens with this big increase in natural gas has been that it's displaced coal. And when you go to a site when all is said and done, it looks kind of like some of these oil wells you see down here in Venice or uh, you know, in Beverly Hills High or elsewhere. It is a combination, very quiet, um, uh, just kind of sitting out there on a pad in the countryside, and this natural gas flows through. So um, despite some of the damage you see during the fracking operations as opposed to a coal mine where you're seeing a constant disruption of the environment. When, um, when the project is done, it usually has a very low environmental footprint. So where are we looking at in terms of here? Where are these resources? Are they going to go away? Are we here for a long time? Um, the, in the case of gas, it's pretty ubiquitous. In fact, I don't know if you've seen the papers here, but there's discussions about actually doing fracking in California to extract gas, and or in some cases oil. So you can see those areas here under Santa Monica and in uh, Southern California. But there's a huge um, chunk of the country that has these types of deposits. And so the um, question that you have here is that how long is this going to last? Um, the, General sense is very much like coal. We're talking about hundreds of years of supply. So the, the next question is, is then, what is really, what are we going to do with this natural gas and what's likely to happen? Um, we are seeing a continued supplanting of coal uh, with natural gas in terms of electric power generation. And for people who are concerned about climate change, that's a good thing. Natural gas is methane, that's a carbon, and for hydrogen, when you burn it, you get a lot of water, little carbon dioxide. Coal is all carbon, so when you burn it, it's all carbon dioxide. So natural gas has maybe a third to half of the warming power that coal does when you burn it for electricity. And so for a combination of both price, cleanliness in terms of conventional pollutants, uh, cost of new generating plants, natural gas plants are much cheaper than coal plants and much, much cheaper than nuclear. We expect to see some continued substitution of coal for natural gas. So 
as in California is probably on the forefront of this, most of your electric power is, is produced, generated by natural gas, very little by coal here. Um, the other major policy question has been um, some people um, some people have uh, big terminals, uh, especially in the Gulf of Mexico, but also in Maryland, who would like to export this natural gas because you can get three or four times the price in Japan or South Korea for natural gas that you can in Pennsylvania. And so currently there's a large discussion about whether to go ahead and export natural gas. Um, there's maybe a half dozen different proposals out there that are really concrete. One is in the process of being constructed. And so we are likely to end up being a natural gas exporter, uh, liquefied natural gas over the next few years. What is less certain, at least in my view, are some of the other uses for natural gas. Some have talked about converting all of our cars to compressed natural gas. I mean, those are used in Europe and elsewhere. Um, they haven't really taken off as much. They're kind of expensive, and there's concern about refueling. And if you get an accident, uh, you want to make it could be pretty nasty. And then there's also some talk about using gas to make diesel fuel. And there's one plant, Louisiana, that's going ahead to convert natural gas to diesel. But so, at least in our view, um, conventional uses of natural gas, yes, we'll see continued increases. Some of the more, um, some of the different uses, especially transportation fuels, we're a little more cautious on. That said, uh, Burlington Northern, one of our four largest uh, railroads, has decided to go ahead and convert its locomotives to natural gas. So we are seeing some movement into transportation. Next question is, is will natural gas prices stay low? And the general sense here, oh, sorry. The general sense here is no. Um, at current moment, we've seen the number of, of wells being drilled in Pennsylvania has halved over the last year continues to go down. People would move those drills to North Dakota or else someplace else where they can use it to drill for oil or something called <coughs> wet gas. So wet gas is natural gas which has a, a bunch of other hydrocarbons like propane if everybody's used propane before or butane or other types of, of, of these types of liquids which are used for petrochemicals. So they all moved across the border to Ohio where they had more wet grass. And these types of wells are a little bit different from, again, those ones that you see down here in Venice or, um, or in Beverly Hills. Those wells have been going, you know, they were drilled 50, 60 years ago. In these particular instances, and they still produce, for these types of wells, when you have that initial blast into the shale or the sand and, and the natural gas just surges out, after 12 months or 24 months, that goes down pretty rapidly. So if you're going to keep production up, you've got to keep drilling. And when you're not getting much money for the natural gas, then there's a propensity to, um, to, you know, a propensity to stop drilling, and we've seen that happen already. So there's a lot of factors that are going to push natural gas prices up. Some uh, doesn't look like we're back to the peaks we saw in 2007, 2008, if you remember your utilities here, some of them went bankrupt at the time because of those very high natural gas prices. But nonetheless, these very low prices we've seen recently um, probably aren't here forever. Finally, the question is, what about coal? And as you can see, the um, United States is extraordinarily well endowed, not only with natural gas, but also with coal. Um, we you know, mine about a billion tons a year. I don't even know exactly how much a billion tons is, but as you can imagine, it's a huge amount of coal, and it's pretty much all used to generate electricity, a little bit used for steel or exported. Of that, um, maybe about 10% is going being exported abroad, um, but we have seen, as we've seen, declines in terms of coal. Now, most of that coal increase that's been, ex there's, um, that is being forecast, a modest increase over the next 10, 20 years, all coming out of Wyoming. Has anybody been out to Powder River Basin? Seen there? Yeah, it's just amazing. I mean, these huge, huge walls, you know, it's taller than Rand in terms of those walls of coal. 
Um, so at the one hand, you see these big open pit mines where you, um, you know, take these enormous buckets and, and mine the coal. And Wyoming, on the other hand, when you go further east, um, there's still a substantial amount of mining in Appalachia, but that is declining. And part of that is from competition from natural gas. Part of that is from closure of, of coal-fired power plants. And, um, and part of it is just increased costs because a lot of these are underground mines and they've been kind of played out. So whereas we've seen um, a sense that there'll be a big increases in natural gas produced in the United States, um, substantial increases in oil, and, um, and kind of stagnation in coal. So how much of this been driven by you know, technology and investment and how much of this has really been driven by policies and how much would policies make a difference in the future in terms of what is burned and produced in the United States in terms of fossil fuels. Um, I don't think you can overemphasize the importance of fuel economy standards for the recent decline in terms of refined oil demand for gasoline in the states and lesser extent diesel. Um, this has been, we've seen really steady increases in terms of the efficiency with which our vehicles move and that's had a big impact in terms of demand for gasoline, especially imported oil. Um, there's been some federal programs for weatherproofing, building efficiency. Uh, efficiency is always, always good. How important they've been is a little bit different. Uh, the other thing that we've seen it tends have been mandates for the use of renewable energy. And here California has been, um, and the eastern states of the United States have been very much on the forefront. Um, I would have to say the results are a little bit mixed. Um, we've seen uh, some higher cost uh, sources of energy come in. Uh, there's been special, you know, the federal government provides special subsidies for wind power and elsewhere. We have seen some shift, but if you really look at what's generated in terms of United States electricity, even with a very sharp increase of wind energy, is still coal and coal, hydropower, nuclear, and natural gas. Um, U.S. policies have also had an impact in terms of the closure of some of the very old coal-fired power plants. You've seen those on the, on the TV or not, but those were built in the 50s and 60s. They've hung along for a long time, and with the decline in natural gas prices, but also a little tougher environmental regulations, some of those have been closed. Finally, I'd like to kind of talk about how could this picture, so the picture we've had, I've kind of laid out today, um, big increases, continued increases in natural gas were probably a little higher price than you've been paying over the last two years. Uh, maybe it was at a low of $2, $2 per um, uh, $2 per million BTU, and now it's kind of up to three, could go up to four or five. Uh, we've seen migration out of coal, and we've seen much more efficient use of oil, and we'll see more increases in U.S. production resulting in less imports from abroad. Um, how could that future be? Nonetheless, that's really a, a view of a fossil fuel pick future. So what could happen elsewhere if there was a more aggressive policies towards reducing the use of fossil fuels in the U.S. energy picture. It is, for all intents and purposes, a coal story. If you look at the biggest sources and the cheapest sources to replace in terms of emissions of carbon dioxide, it's coal. So if there was a much more aggressive policy, what you'd see is you'd see um, a pretty substantial reduction in emissions from coal because we would close down a lot of coal-fired power plants, partly replaced by wind. Uh, solar is pretty small in the future and partly replaced potentially by more nuclear, although that's been a difficult challenge, and partly replaced, um, uh, not in this case, but by natural gas. You'd also see some reduction in oil. Most of that reduction has to be do with being more efficient. Uh, the real, if you look at electric cars, you look at natural gas as a substitute for gasoline and diesel, um, it's, it's pretty tough. And in fact, it's, um, I think it's striking again uh, uh, when you think about ExxonMobil has, has taken a, a, has in some cases supported a carbon tax. I think they've looked at it pretty carefully and, and if you 
think if you talk to oil companies, there's a real sense that that if there is a carbon tax or increased charges in terms of emitting carbon dioxide, the fuel that gets nailed is really coal. Um, gasoline and diesel are such an efficient way to run cars that, that you don't see the declines here as much. And although you do see a pretty substantial increase in renewables, it still tends to be pretty low. So this is kind of a future in which we make big changes, and even in that future we'll still see a big role for natural gas and oil. I'd like to, I'll, I'll kind of end up on a final note, and then I'd like to open up for your questions. Um, people always often talk about foreign policy implications of energy independence. And as I started the talk, I talked about, well, you have to again think about electricity versus you know, gasoline and diesel. When it comes to electricity, we've been, for all intents and purposes, energy independent forever. We don't, don't worry about that, so it's really been oil. So what if the United States you know, really reduces oil imports? Is that going to have a big foreign policy impact in the United States? And my response is no, I don't think so. And that's again because the global market, the oil is a global integrated market. And so even if we import, and we import very little oil from the Gulf, Persian Gulf at this moment in time, even if we import no oil from the Persian Gulf, um, if you think about it when Iran, where it's illegal for us to import oil, goes off market, if Iranian, you know, when the Iranians drop production, it affects you just as much as it does someone in China or India who imports that oil because the price goes up. And so from a U.S. perspective, uh, as long as the Persian Gulf is a major supplier of oil for the world as a whole, and as long as we're part of this global market for oil, um, we're going to be just as sensitive to changes in the Middle East in the future as we are today. Um, maybe more of us might have uh, some stocks in oil companies or maybe some lucky people in Texas and elsewhere would make money from their own oil wells. But for the consumer, for people who are buying gasoline on a daily basis, uh, it's not going to make any difference. So with that, um, I'll open it up for questions. Hi, I'm John Marshall Jones with the California Black Health Network. And we understand that President Obama has made a goal of having a million electric cars on the road by 2015. That being said, um, how many electric cars will have to be on the road in order for this scenario to begin to play out? It's an excellent question. Um, one of my colleagues, Costa Samaras, has actually done this analysis. Makes a lot of difference where that electricity comes from. Because if your electric car is running off electricity generated by coal, your car is dirtier than someone else's electric car that's burning gasoline. So you have to, so this sense of, of electric, electric cars being clean really makes a big difference where that electric power comes from. Um, you know, that, there, that goal of a million cars is, you know, 2015 is two years from now. We've seen kind of a fairly slow uptake of electric vehicles. Um, and a lot of the analysis kind of indicates if you have, uh, you know, if you're buying a, a really fuel-efficient car like for Ford Fiesta or something or hybrid, that a Prius or even a plug-in hybrid like the Chevy Volt, uh, you're getting almost all, you know, the declines in, in gasoline consumption or stuff, you're getting a, a big benefit all, already there. So uh, it, the electric car story, um, maybe, maybe 2020 or something, but we really haven't seen that, you know, we haven't seen the consumer jump on that yet. And, and you, you get a lot of the benefits from increased efficiency. Um, you can get a lot of that from more conventional cars. We have a question in the center. Um, California is trying to lead the way in getting off coal. And what do you see it's doing to the general economy in California? I mean, we also have high unemployment. And are we hurting ourselves by trying to move so fast off coal? 
Well, California has, you know, benefited for a long time because uh, they've been able to draw on some of the hydropower from, you know, Washington and Oregon. And then they've been a pretty natural gas-heavy state for a long, long time. So there isn't a lot of coal in California already. So the push-off coal um, currently doesn't have big price effects. And I think where people are concerned is if the cost of electricity gets to a point where it, it really hurts business. And given the fairly low price of natural gas right now, California hasn't hasn't been hurting that at current moment, not like it was in 2007. A question in the back. Uh, you mentioned that the cost of gas will stay roughly the same as the, US, the U.S.'s production of oil increases. How do you see the price fluctuating for solvents and other basic precursor chemicals used by, say, pharmaceutical industries or other petrochemical industries? That's a good question. So far... Um, you know, the, the point was is that oil is a globally traded product, and so oil prices tend to be determined by the global market. And I think a good example of that now is that, you know, you're paying a lot here. I'm from the East Coast. We're paying four bucks a gallon out there, 370. And you're going, you know, Europe's in recession. The United States economy isn't really great. Uh, 30 years ago, oil prices would be falling dramatically. And what has changed now is that China actually, in December, actually imported more oil than the United States did. It's not a, not a bigger consumer of oil yet, but, but, but it still is, it reflects the importance of China and India and Latin America and other places in terms of driving that oil demand. So, um, so in terms of oil and gasoline, we're, we're pretty much, um, you know, dependent. You know, that price is set by all these new drivers and all over the world. In terms of what you are talking about here, these liquids, talked a little bit before, these natural gas liquids, and those goes, goes going to petrochemical plants. So far in the States, those prices are still pretty linked to oil prices. And part of it is that you can export them. I mean, the reason why natural gas prices can be so low here compared to what they are in Japan or North, South Korea is that people in South Korea and Japan, there's no way to get the natural gas from the states over there. What you can do with things like butane or some of these petrochemical products you talked about, you can put them in tanks and you can ship them to Europe or elsewhere. So the price of those products um, are more competitive here than they are in Europe, for example, or Japan, but the price spread is not like we have between natural gas. We have a question in the front. I was somewhat surprised that you didn't mention or spend much time on nuclear power. You, you, you almost was a throwaway, oh, yes, nuclear. Mm -hmm. Why isn't there more of a push for nuclear with the theoretical improvements in safety and technology? That's a good question. Um, I, I think the, you know, nuclear power, I'm an economist by training, so, you know, we're dismal science. We always talk about money and costs. And the big problem with nuclear is this is really expensive. And with the improvements in wind power, wind is, even if you don't have a subsidy, wind is now, it's cheaper to go out and build a windmill someplace and use that power than it is to use nuclear power. And it's not just the states. Some people talk, oh, you know, you Californians are San Onofre and you have all these regs and things like that. But if you look at, um, there's a power plant going up in Finland and the French were going to build it and they're supposedly build all these power plants, know how to do it. It's three times over budget. They're losing their shirt on it. Um, Koreans are trying to build a plant in Dubai, in the, Gulf, in the Persian Gulf, over budget. And... Part of the problem is these are really big, complicated construction projects, and so they're really vulnerable to overruns, and there aren't many sales, and so people get kind of aggressive in terms of how they're building it. So if you're a, on a board of directors for an electric power company in the United States, and we have a much more, you know, the place that they're building two plants in the States, but those are in states that let... Tell the, you know, tell the consumers, okay, you're going to finance this power plant. It's not going to be built for 10 years, but I'm putting on your weight base now. Here's the money. It goes there, so you're financing the plant. But in most of the rest of the country, you can't get away with that. And so you have to, um, 
you know, that, that it, the onus is on the investor. And if you go to your board and say, well, you know, electricity demand of states is flat. A number of places like California have renewable mandates, and so and there's also a federal program for subsidies for renewables. Natural gas is dirt cheap. And if I want to build new capacity, I can go to General Electric, and they can guarantee that that plant's going to be in 18 months. It's going to cost this much. And so even if natural gas prices go up, I don't have this big capital problem. So I, I just think they they have been unable to provide a cost competitive product. We have a question in the back. Um, I'd like to ask about fracking and the environment since this is California. We're concerned about the environment. And I've heard a lot of environmentalists express real concern about environmental impact of fracking. But I also read in The Economist recently that some of our emissions have been going down because of our increased use of natural gas from fracking, whereas in Europe, some emissions have been going up because they're increasingly importing coal from the United States because they ban fracking. So could you make a case that fracking could actually be good for the environment or or not? Um, If you're concerned about... The key issues on fracking is what to do about... Let me go back. And um, we work... We have an office in Pittsburgh, and, um, you know, the the Department of Environment in Pittsburgh has been working very, very... You know, it's not a pushover. I don't... You know, I think an impression that um, these states with fracking... um, Colorado uses fracking, too, very, you know, very concerned about environment. And so uh, what has happened a little bit... um, these fly-by-night, I should say fly-by-night, the smaller companies who didn't, have not had the technologies to ensure that the well casings are, are intact or whatever, those guys have been kind of pushed out of the market because if you look at this big basin right there, all of these frac sites have lined areas in there. They have sensors. There is a, they face very tight regs in terms of spills and what to do with the water. Now, what they're doing with the water so far, aside from reusing it in the case of Pennsylvania for other drilling, is that in the case of Ohio, some people had drilled down a mile or so way below the water table and tried to and stored it down there. There's been some concerns about that. But in general, um, it's a specific problem, and you could argue about whether that problem is manageable or not, but the industry is very focused on that. So I think on the, on the water side, um, that's the key issue, and um, the industry feels like they can handle it. Uh, a number of departments of environment feel that they've got a handle on it. Uh, other people you know, argue that's not the case. So, um, so the water's an issue. If you get outside of water and you're worried about greenhouse gas emissions, then it's, it's really a no-brainer. And there is some discussion about leaks of methane, which is natural gas, and if methane goes in the atmosphere, it decays, but it, as long as it's up there, it's worse than carbon dioxide for enhancing climate, you know, warming. Um, you know, it's a valuable commodity, the argument that, you know, a company would go out and spend all the expense to, you know, drill a well and then just kind of let it go up in the air. The companies argue that they're very cognizant and there isn't a lot of leakage. There's a little bit of you know, discussion there. Question but, to but you. But I think from climate change, it's, uh, fracking is no-brainer. Question to your left. Hi. You touched uh, briefly on renewables and wind, ener- wind energy. I wanted to know which other sources of um, renewable energy are you most optimistic about and uh, which sources are you more pessimistic about? Um, you know, there's kind of four... Okay, we talk about wind, which is biggest in the states now. Solar, where you're starting. Solar is more popular in California, but it's still pretty small as a share of output. Um, We talk about geothermal. And um, geothermal, there's some historical play. You know, Iceland is a classic case where, you know, people put water down and it comes up and it becomes steam. And then uh, hydropower, of course, is our largest long-standing source of renewable energy, which is by far and away the most important, but there isn't a lot of room for expansion and biomass. Um, of those, um, I'm most, 
kind of negative on biomass. You know, we've been there, done that in the 19th century. We kind of clear-cut the country, and at least in my part of the country now, it's growing back. But, um, you know, that's, that's what the early railroads used. They used wood. And so uh, I think that the sense of, of much broader use of biomass, you get into questions about, uh, you know, are you going to, go to tree farms or, you know, what is the effect on biodiversity and elsewhere. And the other problem with biomass, currently, um, you know, it's a couple guys go out and pick up trucks and take the stuff and take it to a plant or whatever. It's, it's kind of expensive to move the stuff around because it's pretty low value. You know, you put a whole pickup truck, it's not worth that much, but takes a lot of time and labor. So I'm a little bit cautious, I'm cautious on biomass. Um, solar seems to have become a little, I'm a little more optimistic than I was on solar, but it's still pretty expensive. And compared to wind, solar is still substantially more expensive. It's, um, when you think about putting on your roof, you know, there's some cases where it's um, pretty competitive with the price of power you get from, from the grid. And so there's been, and with the prices coming down, it's okay. But you know, people look at solar panels, you got to look at the whole package. You got to install it, got to keep it clean, uh, you got to make sure that it gets maintained, and all of these activities add to cost. And some of those, just the fact that the solar cells are going down in price, it doesn't really result in a decrease in installation costs. So, um, so it's gotten cheaper, but it's still not very, most of the country is not competitive with wind. Places it's good, it's here, you guys are lucky, and uh, Arizona and places like that, you get up into, you know, uh, the East Coast or whatever, uh, the economics are pretty marginal. We have a question in the front. Thanks. My name's Stephen. Uh, just to that last comment you were making about uh, the methane gas leaking from fracking, and a lot of the fracking companies say it's not really a, a problem. But if you look at the images from the NASA satellites in space at night, that region in North Dakota in the shale gas area is as bright as New York and Chicago, and it's from all the methane flaring and going up into the atmosphere. So there's a huge problem for that, and it's about a 1,000 times more potent than CO2 once it gets up there. But my question is, um, you know, this talk is an energy-independent United States, and the issue that's topical in the media right now is the Keystone XL pipeline and uh, using the Alberta tar sands oil. And a lot of the rhetoric from the politicians and the media is that this is going to lead to an energy independent United States. But isn't the truth that it's a very low quality oil um, and it's heavy crude and most of it is going to be destined for export to international markets? So we're not going to even use it here. And I'd be interested in hearing your comments on that. Uh, very good question. First, there's a little different. North Dakota is an oil play, and um, right now when you get oil, you sometimes get natural gas with it. When you flare it, it's not the methane goes up, it's water and carbon dioxide, but it's not a good use of stuff, and um, there has been a lot of pressure, and of course it's a valuable commodity to collect that, but currently it is a big waste of resources, and it, and it, but it generates more carbon dioxide because they don't just release the methane, they... As you say, they flare it and burn it. Um, in terms of the um, tar sands from Alberta, um, I think the, argu the arguments there are, are the following. One is there's, um, if you go up there, the traditional way was kind of like strip mining. Uh, more recently, the new developments are what they call in situ. So they put, um, you know, the... In essence, they put steam down in the ground, and then they collect oil coming up. So the the massive, um, if you look at Shell and Chevron and some of the Canadian companies up there, the newer developments don't have that particular environmental problem of the large scale um, strip mining, which you know has been devastating up there. The next question is: is is it it is a heavier oil? And there are two parts to that. One. The biggest part is that in order to get it out of the ground, you've got to generate energy in order to create the steam to get it out. And so this is this argument about, I think it's like 17% penalty or more that you need to get one barrel of oil out. You have to use you know, a fifth of a barrel in order to get it out. 
And so there's been an argument on that score. Um, once it gets into the, um, you know, right now they, there are pipelines that bring it out both into Canada and the United States. Um, what you're seeing out of North Dakota and Alberta is they stick it in rail cars. Uh, rail cars are a little more are more expensive um, from a strictly physical environmental point of view. They use more energy to move the same amount of oil. So I think your your real question is um, is do you think not having the oil pipeline is going to stop production there or not? And the the producers argue they'll just either they'll build a pipeline someplace else or they'll continue to take it about by by um, by train. For uh, the states, um, as I, I, my argument has been it's a global oil market, so uh, if we're buying a barrel of oil from Canada or we're buying, we're buying one less barrel of oil from Venezuela or whatever, but it all, it's, it's not like the Canadian oil is an addition to, it's, it, it, you know, it just substitutes for oil from someplace else. No, I mean, actually, it's odd. Um, you know, the United States is, is what they, they call them pads, but, you know, you've got Long Beach and uh, right down here, which is a big refining center. California is kind of a little bit of an island for refining, but you have a big refining industry there. And so you're using oil um, from California itself, and some of the stuff that comes down from Alaska comes here. In the Gulf area, per, the Gulf of Mexico area, historically they had gotten stuff from Texas, but they'd also taken a lot from Venezuela. And so some of the most sophisticated refineries in the world are in that Houston-Galveston area. And so what they're doing now is they will take the Canadian crude and instead of taking Venezuelan crude. And then if you go to Pennsylvania area, you know, or in Pennsylvania area, they're still relying on imported crude oil from other parts of the world, Nigeria or elsewhere, which has its own environmental problems, as you well know. And um, so they're having to pay top dollar, and so that's been part of the problem there, where they're, the Gulf is getting much cheaper oil because it's kind of all jammed up in the middle of the country. So they're paying 20 bucks a barrel less down there than people are in Philadelphia. And in places like Chicago or, or Denver, elsewhere, which also have refineries, they rely on the oil from the middle of the country. Question to your left. It's my understanding that the balance of payments in the United States would be eliminated if we were energy independent. Um, that would be a huge economic benefit to the United States, even if the price at the gas station did not change. Is that true? Um, it's helpful, but not really true, because I think the thing you have to think about, uh, South Korea, Japan, Germany, they don't pump a single drop of oil, and they have trade surpluses. And so the idea that somehow or another that by no longer importing oil, our trade deficit goes away um, is not, that, that's not what's going on here. What is happening in the states, and it's changing some, but we weren't very good savers for, you know, for several decades now. I mean, we used to have current account surpluses. We used to loan money to other parts of the world up until 1972-73. So it's not that, I don't know, not that long ago. Since then, we've been kind of net borrowers, and what that means is is that if we're attracting capital elsewhere that shows up as a trade deficit. And so it kind of shifts around. I mean, it, in essence, what it is is that we could borrow off our houses in the, in the last decade. We could use that money to buy cars or champagne or shoes or whatever. And so we brought more stuff into the country than we were shipping out. And uh, with the recession and people not being able to borrow against their houses anymore, you saw in 2009 a big decline in our trade deficit, not so much because we're producing more oil, but because, you know, in some ways we're no longer able to afford all that. And so these big shifts in terms of trade surpluses and deficits are a little more to do with 
savings, you know, net savings and, uh, and willingness of people to invest in the states, it's still a very attractive place to invest, then it pro just is on commodities. That said, it has been very helpful that we are importing less oil, and you have seen some decline in the trade deficit, but um, I would hesitate to say if we, you know, if we didn't import a single drop of oil, that we would no longer have a trade deficit. And, and the reason why I say that is, you know, you look at, um, you know, countries that don't produce any oil and they have trade surpluses. So it, there's, you know, some other, act, there's other things going on than just oil. We have time for one last audience question to the speakers, right? Hi, um, my name is John Felson. I'm, I'm, I have to say, frankly, that I was really disappointed to hear um, how little you spoke about solar. Do you agree with Secretary Chu that um, in, by the end of this decade that we will be at unsubsidized grid parity with the rest of these fuel sources? Um, because if you do, all of this you're describing, mean, in one of your slides you look to the left and I couldn't help but notice there's actually a photovoltaic array that's running the compressors for the natural mm -hmm. gas. And this notion of drilling three miles down for some, you know, maybe don't trust the companies, they'll be fine. But this, I, I, it's, I don't know, it's, it's like a insanity, quite frankly. Um, and uh, no disrespect, but like, no, no, that's fine. You, know, <clears throat> you know, it costs, the Germans right now are producing 10% of their power with photovoltaic. They're subsidized by a feed-in tariff. It costs a general rate payer about $200 extra a year to pay for this more expensive, clean future energy that exists for 30 years. How many more $3 trillion wars or $50 billion superstorms are we as a country going to endure before we wake up from this collective nightmare and give a future to our children that is actually sustainable? I, I would say, um, you know, in terms of renewables, um, you have seen declines in solar. If you look at the numbers, wind, and for most of the country now, California is a little different, Arizona, wind has been uh, much more is still is quite is more competitive in much of the country. Again, it depends on whether you've got North Dakota or Montana or where the wind goes. Um, I hope you're right on solar. Um, you have had you know some big pushback both in Spain and elsewhere in terms of the pretty high feed-in tariffs, and uh, and so I I'm not first. I think we can do a tremendous amount with efficiency. I also don't see solar really solving the transportation problem. So. Um, you know, if it if it happens, great. Um, I'm just a little skeptical on on whether it will, it, you know, solar will become competitive. I'm happy to stick around. I mean, I'm here for a while, but if, I know a number of you want to. So come on up and ask questions if you want. So let's uh, thank Keith one last time. This presentation is provided as a public service by the Rand Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at Rand. Visit us online at www.rand.org events.